Hi, and welcome back to the Mission Minded Podcast. I'm Jim. And I'm John. It's good to be back, Jim. It's been a little while. It's been too long, John. I'm, I'm, yeah. I don't know. Season one is behind us, and we're moving You're on. You're a regular, two. and season two, not so much. It's okay. That's and, uh, as he's going to say, I, I can be a footnote. You'll hear that later. Okay. Be a footnote in uh, season two. Yeah. Well, the, the interview went great. We just wrapped up the interview with uh, Paul Borthwick, author of Western Christians and Global Mission. Has a few other books out there, but our team has been going through this. Some challenging stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just some some challenging, kind of convicting things of, um, you know, and really balancing the, as he will tell, as you'll hear him say, the extremes of, you know, the West to the rest versus uh, our role now is just to send money. And so those are two unhealthy you know perspectives that right right when um things have changed over the last 40 50 years and so what is the role of the north american church and when we're now the the minority church the the southern hemisphere um as far as christians go around the world you know we're we're now the minority the majority world church is now sending missionaries out at a greater pace than the u.s and so what role do we have now? Well, then that's that's the question that we're maybe not trying to answer, but trying to, you know, come up have with a some discussion, yeah. have a discussion about here. Right. Yeah. Well, thanks again for joining us, John. Let's Good get to it. Good to be back. It. All right. Welcome to Mission Minded, the podcast where we explore outside the box thinking in carrying out Christ's Great Commission. On this week's episode, we are joined by author Paul Borthwick. Our sponsor for today's podcast is Dignity Roasters Coffee. Locally roasted and packaged by the distressed to fuel each day. Dignity Roasters was born through a passion to partner with the distressed and the desire of bringing the universally loved beverage of coffee to your hands. To order your own coffee or to learn more about Dignity Roasters, visit their website at DignityRoasters.com. Now here's your host, Jim Tingler and John Spin. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's great to be with you. I appreciate the invitation. So for those who might not know who Paul Borthwick is, would you mind just introducing yourself? Sure. I am the man of whom Billy Graham once said, who? <laughs> but actually, uh, I live in Lexington, Massachusetts like a famous place that you might have studied in high school. I worked as a youth pastor, then as a missions pastor, and now I work with a leadership training group called Development Associates International. I taught for 30 years global Christianity, which is a euphemism for missions work, uh, at Gordon College, uh, just about 30 miles north of me here. And I'm married to uh, Christy. We've been married for 42 years and have traveled quite extensively, both as a missions pastor and now as a leadership development training person. And Paul, uh, we, we have a lot of conversations leading up to this podcast. And in one of those conversations, you mentioned some of the connections to the Ecuador story. Uh, would you mind sharing those? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm 67 years old, so anybody who knows age knows that I was born a year before, I believe it was January of 56 or 55? 56. 56. 
56, so I was born two years before. But even as a child, I can remember Life magazine and uh, all the things that Elizabeth Elliot wrote being around the house. But I made a personal commitment to global mission in 1973. And uh, the director of Urbana 73 was David Howard. David Howard is Elizabeth Elliot's brother and Jim Elliot's college roommate. All right. So um, that that story, Shadow of the Almighty, Gates of Splendor, that whole story was incredibly life shaping to me in terms of the radical commitment to follow Jesus. So to be connecting now back in the, all these years uh, with an organization related to Nate Saint and Steve Saint um, is very significant because their life example was actually a pace setter for me in terms of sacrifices to make and all. And the other sort of personal uh, connection was I just so happened to be in Ecuador with my wife in 1994 when Rachel Saint passed away. So the whole history of the Alka Warani people was, you know, back in the news, at least in the missions news. But it was, so it's it's very exciting. I mean, uh, I've never gotten to visit them. I have gotten to have lunch with Elizabeth Elliot, but that's a conversation for a different day. Yeah. Well, we just had uh, Helen Vaughn on the show, who just finished her uh, biography. Just yeah, a few weeks back. Yeah, and speaking of books, uh, that's. <clears throat> One of the connections that we made with you was our uh, Western Christians and Global Mission book. And so we'll be talking a little bit about that today. You've, you've written quite a few others. But again, in our, our pre-interview, an interesting fun fact. You're actually referenced in the Purpose Driven Life book <laughs> on day 38. So I'm, It's a footnote. <laughs> Yeah, actually, that's not even true. It's an end note. Okay, okay. And Rick Warren says that that book that he referenced should be read by every Christian. And we've discovered that not every Christian listens to Rick Warren's advice. <laughs> um, they haven't bought the book. But it's a very great story because it asked me the question, Do I am I willing to be a footnote in somebody else's life? Mm-hmm. And, uh, the person after whom I am named, namely Paul the Apostle, had a guy in his life named Ananias. Yeah, yeah. And Ananias, if you read in Acts chapter 9, he's alluded to, and then the next few verses it says the disciples. So in other words, he just disappears. He's referred to one other time in the book of Acts when Paul gives his testimony. But he was only a footnote in the life of someone more famous than Rick Warren. <laughs> well, good stuff. And John, our team goes through a lot of books, and and we're always trying to grow and learn. And John, you came across this book, right? I did. Um, Well, we interviewed him a while, uh, several weeks ago, uh, Doug Harrison from MAF, and we met him at uh, Missio Nexus in September, uh, in Orlando, September of 2019. And uh, Dan, Dan and I, our media guy, we were at the booth, and we got to talking to him, and he challenged us, and this was a book that he encouraged us to read. And wow. so, um, I did. I did eventually read that, and um, a very, yeah, very challenged, um, you know, by your book. And um, yeah, really, there's the extremes of, um, you know, the that the Western missionaries should come and do all the work and be the hero, and 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 then there's the other extreme of 
we should just stay home and send our money. And so I, I feel like you're, you're doing a good job there trying to answer those questions of you know, what is our role? We have a role. It might not be what it has historically been and just understanding our, a, a correct understanding of what a role is. And so that's yeah. really what we would try for our listening audience is probably largely, you know, North American Christians and helping them us all, you know, process, you know, our role in the Great Commission. <clears throat> well, I've, I've done a fair amount of traveling and speaking at church missions conferences. And the way I would describe it is some churches missions vision is somewhere in the 1970s. Meaning it's all about from us to them you know, from the West to the rest. And missionaries are almost always white-skinned, middle-class Americans who go to different exotic places. And on the other extreme is the church that basically say, hey, listen, there's maybe 100 million Christians in China. Why would we be sending missionaries anymore? You know, and the church in Nigeria sends missionaries and the church in India is sending missionaries and the church in Brazil is sending missionaries and Korea has been sending missionaries for a long time. So let's just sit on our hands, write a check. And, you know, and the book is trying to balance those two mm -hmm. things because I believe the Great Commission is, um, is basically every Christian is basically ob obligated to obey the Great Commission through all time and all cultures. And so the way we obey that in terms of who we reach out to, how what's cross-cultural, that might change, but the fact that, you know, missions isn't over and just because it doesn't feature us as the star of the show doesn't mean we shouldn't be involved. And that's really, really where the book came from, because I could see the extremes. Hmm. And, you know, one thing that I, I want to just throw in here, the, there's different groups that say all you need to do is write a check, right? And let me just say to myself and to your listeners and to you guys, God wants your life. He doesn't want your money, <laughs> right? God's not waiting for you to pay the bill. And um, to quote from an older guy that I met when I was younger, he said, if the Western church, if the North American church gives to missions only its money and no longer its sons and daughters, the missionary vision will be dead in a generation or less wow. because, oh. it will, because it will affirm a dangerous materialism that's already present in our country that we can do anything we want just with money. Hmm. And, you know, when you think back on it, you know, there might have been a, a, might have been a deeper way to reach the Alcas. Right? But those guys laid down their lives and those five arguably were some of the greatest mobilizers for the next generation by their death more than they could have been by their life. So, I mean, it's a, it's a flesh and blood ministry, but it's also something to do with uh, making sure we don't try to superimpose ourselves on people. And you can ask me about that a little bit later. Well, one of the questions I thought would be good is to maybe step back a little bit and ask, how did God lead you toward mission work? It's a great question because everybody's pathway if is, is a little bit different. For me personally, um, my dad named me Paul, so that was kind of a little prophetic word. Depending on how Pentecostal you are, that was either a prophetic word 
or just good luck. Or predestination. Predestin- it was predestination. But I was raised in a Christian home, so we had missionaries in our home, and we had a lot of exposure to uh, mission conferences and the like. But I was also a rebellious teenager. And so a child of the 70s, you know, rebellious meant all sorts of things, which we won't go into right now. But I was very dramatically converted when I was 17. I mean, a full conversion, not just a cultural acceptance of my parents' beliefs. And um, and immediately that summer, people took me on a cross-cultural short-term mission trip. Now, get a load of this. I was 17, and I, I had never been really outside of Massachusetts or New England. So they took us to work in Appalachia in eastern Kentucky, it was the most foreign experience I had ever had at 17 years old, right? But it was just, it was a, like, a, this is what I was made for. It really struck me. And so then Urbana, 20, Urbana 1973, that's a, this inter student right. missions conference. Um, they made, asked, who would you devote yourself to global mission? And that's what I did. But I kept planning on going, you know, um, there was a mission mobilizer years ago. He said, everybody should be planning to go, but willing to stay. And that was sort of the, the, the mantra in my head, you know, like planning to go. So on three or four different occasions, I got as far as I could get and it never worked out. And um, so since then, uh, I've never actually been a long-term cross-cultural missionary but by the grace of God and the connections and all the different sovereign works of God in my life, I've had the privilege of doing ministry in over 120 countries. So, but my wife made a commitment at Urbana 73 the same night. We didn't meet for okay. three years. We didn't meet for three more years, but she was there in that crowd of what was then about 10,000. Hmm. Yeah. So that's sort of the background. And then it's just gotten you know, accelerated over time. Yep, and you you actually led hundreds of short-term trips as well. That was through your local church? Yeah, the, the, the way that's worded in my bio is a little deceptive or a little misleading. I coordinated them. Okay. You know, so uh, that would sometimes mean a preview trip. It would sometimes mean uh, I was leading the trip, uh, but I was basically on the go on those summer mission trips starting we started doing high school cross-cultural mission trips to south america in 1978 and it was the second time in my life i had ever been on an airplane and so more than a few parents of the kids that were in my youth group have now the kids have grown up and they've said to me what were you thinking because uh, i mean we we took kids we took his to Morocco, teenagers. Yeah, wow, you know, but uh, nowadays the emphasis is more on learning than it is on doing. Uh, I like both of them, especially with teenagers, because when they're doing, they're learning, hmm. you know, and, and I think it gives them more of a sense of a purpose. But it was always to serve the local church, the indigenous, if you want to call it that, the local believers. Yeah, in the intro of your book, you actually mentions reflecting on a lot of those trips and you said in reality we were really more spectators and learners voluntarists in the most positive light are poverty voyeurs in the most negative 
And so rather than positive con contributors to the long-term growth of the church. And so are, is that still where you stand and your reflection on that? I would stand with um, the short-term mission trips would be valuable if they're well-trained, if they're well-led, and that means people who are not just cross-culturally sensitive or chaperones, but actually devoted to the discipleship of teenagers or young adults who are on the trip, and if there's good follow-up. But it's even best when it all, all those things come together under the umbrella of the overall purpose of the mission that you're serving. You know, so the most receptive people to short-term mission trips for high schoolers are oftentimes missionaries who themselves were mobilized when they were teenagers. Mm -hmm. Because they they think this is worth the investment. But, it, you know, training, I my greatest fear when I go through the Miami International Airport in July and August is a bunch of the same color t-shirts you got it you know uh and it's a bunch of experiential junkies mm -hmm. and i like to tell people because you're broadcasting from florida you'll get this more than some i said if you want to have a great experience in the muslim world you want to talk to muslims from morocco you want to eat moroccan food you you want to see and hear moroccan music and dance i said then go to the epcot center at disney and go to the Morocco exhibit. I said, if you want to go to Morocco, find someone who's actually living and serving there and go there, serve and keep your mouth shut and learn. So, I mean, I, yeah, I, I firmly believe in, it's interesting, even the most critical people about short-term missions, right? The most critical people about short-term missions usually are veterans of short-term missions and that's how they got their vision. And I can be that way too. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some pretty um, embarrassing moments overseas. And I've done it. Yeah. So that's why I know I think, it. I think we all have. Yep. Yeah. Certainly. So um, let's talk a little bit about the book. What was the, the motivation and heart behind writing the Western Christians and Global Mission? That's a great question that I'll start by answering the question that I first was asked. They said, how long did it take you to write this book? And I, I said I, it was 19. It was 2012 when I wrote the book, and I told him it took me about like 56 years, because it really is the accumulation. It's it's somewhat autobiographical, especially at the beginning, where I talk about how I went from being the triumphalistic American has the answer to everything because we've got money and resources, to the look what God's doing in the world and please Jesus don't leave us out. Hmm. Because, you know, we who are in North America, especially the United States, we're 5% of the world's population. It's always possible that God's actually doing something where we're not included. I mean, that's a, that's a horrible thought for Americans, but it's, we're just a tiny little fraction of the Church of God around the world. And so, you know, that's, so I'm just so excited that he still invites us into his program. Hmm. You know what I mean? But... Um, but the book was at least in part to that question of, you know, do we do same old, same old mission or do we do everything where everything is just delegated over and we support the national church and somewhere in between. And that's why in the book I actually give strengths and weaknesses of the North American church and strengths and weaknesses of the non-Western church. 
sometimes the people who want to give all their money just to non-Western mission groups, sometimes they have a rather naive view of the church around the world. I mean, deception is not unique to the United States, you know, and, and there are some key people who can raise some good money from generous Americans who don't research where their money's going. Yeah, that's true. You know, so, but that, that was what the motivation largely was to sort of, and it's the only book that I've ever done that would be classified by any professor as missiology, but... I prefer to have a book that people understand than a book that people say, wow, that's a big word. You know, I mean, uh, it's too, getting sometimes the most academic people are brilliant and not able to communicate to the guy in the pew. And my, my background in youth ministry and church work sort of helped me realize, as I think I might have make a joke in the book, that there was a guy in our church who thought the Great Commission was 30%. You get it? Yeah, the commission. Yeah. Oh, we get 30. Yeah. <laughs> he, he came out of the See, That's what I mean. Those of us who talk mission language, we don't even get it. Right. Years ago, the hidden peoples, the, the unreached peoples were called hidden peoples. One of the guys at our church asked me, he says, if they're hidden, how do you know where they were? Which is kind of a good point. That's a good you know? point. Yeah. And the 1040 window is the two weeks before April 15th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well so the, the the great commission guy was a salesman he thought 10 percent was a good commission 20 percent was a better commission and 30 percent was a great commission yeah okay hey. maybe 28 percent matthew 28 <laughs> <laughs> that's good so how that's where the book oh, i'm sorry go ahead no, i said that's where the book came from yeah so how, how has uh, missions changed in the last 40 years? And uh, to add to that, what, what is the role of the Western church today? Yeah. Well, to describe the changes, I mean, from a technological point of view, <laughs> the speed of communication is just something that missionaries, even in the 1950s, couldn't have fathomed. Mm. You know what I mean? You know, it's like, it was an old school missionary we were with one time, and he said, I have a ham radio, right? And I said, why can't I just call you? He was in Quito, Ecuador. I mean, you know, it wasn't exactly like he was out of the bush. But uh, technology has changed. The speed of information has changed. Even in the last few years, we can the speed of misinformation has changed. You know what I mean? It's just amazing in that respect. I think the biggest single global change was that sometime in 1985 or in that window, the missiologists who studied these things made the determination that for the first time since maybe the Book of Acts, the church was more than 50% from Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And, uh, and so all of a sudden, white Christianity started becoming the minority. And I will say to your watchers slash listeners, if you don't like people of color, you're going to be really uncomfortable in heaven. But just think about that for a moment. But uh, but I think that's the biggest thing. Um, back in the 19, back in the um, uh, 80s, a um, number of different mission agencies were being started. They were equipping Nigerians for mission or Indians for mission. 
And so the from everywhere to everywhere phenomena began to shift things. And to this day, this this past two weeks ago, I was in a Zoom meeting with a gentleman who was a Nigerian from Nigeria. He joined a ministry called Capro. He had gone 10 years with his wife and family to, uh, to, North, to Morocco as a missionary in the Muslim world because he was very publicly Christian. After 10 years, the, and his, this is his language, his, um, the, the government of Morocco invited him to go home, <laughs> which meant they booted him out of the country. Right? <clears throat> so he, during, that, during that time, he pursued more studies. He ended up getting a PhD in missiology and now this very dark-skinned man from Nigeria is the missions pastor at a predominantly white Presbyterian church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Now, the reason why I tell you that is because the, the, the church around the world is the church around the world, mm -hmm. you know. And there's something in the neighborhood of at least, you know, hundreds of, of Nigerian churches in North America. If you want to worship in a Nigerian-style worship service, go to Houston, because the, Nigeria has oil. They've come there. But the whole migrations of people, the transition of who's in charge. I mean, the guy who's in charge of uh, SIM, which is one of the longest-standing mission, is a Nigerian who served as a missionary doctor in Niger. Then he became the field director for Europe, and now he's the missions director. The head of the navigators is a Kenyan. Right. So in other words, it's the whole world around us is is changing. And uh, the big change has been the rising up, if you will, of the, the global church. And uh, and that challenges our perspective on where we fit in the program, which would be probably a good time to ask me that question. Where do we fit in the program? <laughs> so where do we fit in the program? Oh, yeah. Listen, listen, I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> In the book, Western Christians, because that's the number one, the subtitle of the book is, um, what is it called? Uh, What's the role up. of the North American yeah. church? Right. And, and I answer the question with two phrases. I say, and it's over, oversimplified, but I say, first of all, it's all based on relationships. If the church is already established, you know, before we went to recording, you were talking about a partner we have in Cameroon, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the church is established in Cameroon. So if they're asking iTech for training, then you're coming at their invitation because of relationships. Mm -hmm. And it's all a relation. And, and when the church is established, it's not a matter of us going and saying, you know, Ben, I have a I have a vision for Cameroon. Would you help me fulfill my vision for Cameroon? The issue is, Ben, what's your vision for Cameroon? And how can iTech, how can DAI, that's the group I work with, how can we help you fulfill your vision for Cameroon? And and you talk some about that in your book about visiting and, and just listening versus projecting your agenda and they they all want to say yes because they you know especially in honor shame culture they they want to honor you, but I think the way I like a lot of the things you said in the book just about listening to the partner and making sure that you're really coming alongside them and helping them fulfill versus pushing your agenda on them. Right, right, because 
we Americans have two things that put us in danger. We have the spirit of initiative and we have money, right? And so if I come in and I say to you, John, my vision for Ocala is this, right? And I'm older and I've got more degrees or something like that. And John, I'm going to pay you $175,000 a year to do it, which is probably what ITEC pays you. But nevertheless, <laughs> well, maybe 175000 Nigerian Naira. <laughs> but, but, but that's what we do sometimes. And we take the initiative and we answer our own questions. You know, and that's why one of the things in the book I talk about is uh, with two ears and two eyes and one mouth, try to listen and observe four times for every word you speak. The Bible says it this way, even a fool when he keeps silent is considered wise. That was today's proverb, Proverbs 17. That was, today. was it really? That was today, yeah. yep. Yep. And... Um, and so what's the role? It's all about relationships, number one. But the second thing is, it depends. Because there are places in the world that the American spirit of ingenuity, initiative, and sort of Yahoo cowboyness actually is going to take the initiative that the local church, which might be in a minority context, mm. is not going to do. You know, I don't know what it's like to live under 1,500 years of Muslim oppression. But the church in Egypt knows that. And as a result, they might be more hesitant to reach out than we would be. You know, because we go in there kind of blindly optimistic and, you know, let's just go for it. And by the grace of God, groups like OM and YWAM have been doing that, and they go. And, you know, if we do it long enough, the relational part comes in, you know, and we begin begin to um, we begin to maybe realize that our initiative at the beginning was a little bit too assertive or too aggressive. But I think we really do need to realize that there's not one; it's not a one size fits all, you know. And I don't know what your listenership or watchership or whatever you call it on podcast is, but. Um, for those of us who are middle-class white people, for whatever reason, when we travel overseas, we're given more credit just for being white Americans. They come, they, you know, and so we have to be willing to use our white American um, citizenship, if you will, the way Paul used his Roman citizenship. If it'll help spread the gospel, I'm going for it, right? But if they can use me for their purposes, fine. You know, and I, I was in Nigeria. I was in Nepal one time, teaching a class. We had uh, 18 different languages and 15 different tribes in the class. And I said to the class, they all spoke pretty well, master's level English, so it was pretty good. I said to them, I said, why am I teaching this class? It was on culture ethnicity and diversity. I said, why am I teaching this class? And they all said instantly, we don't listen to each other. You know, so the, the, the old white guy comes in naively from the outside. I can ask any question I want. There's no vested interest. So it's, you know, being willing to be used in certain ways. 
Yeah, it's good stuff. I've got a statement here. I'd like to hear what you think about it. The baton has been passed in missions. Yeah, it's uh, obviously an illustration from a relay race. And the idea be it's usually used when we talk about that, um, when we talk about the, uh, uh, what is it called, the transition I was talking about. Right. You know, it's like now the Ecuadorans are doing the work that, you know, Nate Saint ultimately went to try to do or something like that. Right. And I understand the concept because it's basically, you know, the handing down of things from one generation to the next. Right. But the illustration, I hate it because in the in a relay race, when the baton is passed, the person who releases it gets out of the race. They don't keep running. They don't run along the side, the guy who has the baton to cheer him on. You know, they don't run alongside of him to warn him of pitfalls ahead. You know, they don't want to tell him all the mistakes they made in running. My point is, our role has changed, but we're not out of the race. We still have a role. It's just different. Sorry, I didn't get that one. Well, you're saying we still have a role. It's just different. Yeah. The way I like to put it, I think I said this in the book, we're in the Global Commission, Great Commission Parade, and we're just not the band leader anymore. Mm. You know, maybe we're playing the cymbal and only have a couple of key key moments. But the point is, and it relates to our character, are we willing to be humble enough not to be in charge? Hmm. You know, and that's, to me, the biggest challenge I think we face in North America, because we like to take initiative. We want to fix Africa. You know, we want to fix all these other places. And uh, I think in your past podcast you've had quotations with oscar murio from from nairobi kenya Mm -hmm. and oscar basically said that exact line don't come to africa to work with us don't come to fix africa you know and uh, it's a great reminder because let me give you a very local illustration uh both you guys from florida originally i am i'm not where are you from illinois originally Illinois. All right. So imagine you two together have a vision for evangelizing Boston, right? And you come to Boston with your vision and you've got it all laid out. And you come to me, indigenous Bostonian, and, you know, you, you, you tell me your plan and Paul, you know, we want you to join our plan and everything like that. I'm the I'm the indigenous local person. I know my tribe. And I'll say I'll say Jim, John, until you know how to say wicked smart, you're not going to make it here. <laughs> and if, you, you're, if you're part of the Southern Baptists, something's not going to work in New England. You know what I mean? Because no, in other words, the idea that you would come in naively, that you have something, and I need to hear from you, but I would do that in two years hmm. after you build the relationship with me. You know, and that's, uh, you know, we, we know we can learn from people from all over the country. 
But I'll give you a good example. People are usually shocked when I tell them Boston does not have one Christian music station. Hmm. Wow. Well, which some people just say as a, you know, it's like a tip of the iceberg, but it's a symbol of, of the, if, if you want to prepare missionaries for Western Europe, send them to Boston. Hmm. That's the spiritual climate. And it's not that there's no Christians here. It's just that it's a little bit more of an uphill battle. So that's, um, but that's the illustration being, you know, we need to think about running alongside of the guy who has the baton to encourage him how to keep going. Maybe he needs to be funded. Maybe they need to be uh, trained. You know, I know you guys do leadership training. And, and when I say, you know, teaching them about the bumps in the road ahead, that would be what I'm talking about. So. Thanks, yeah, so don't use, that phrase. don't use that phrase with me is what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, good analogies there. So what are some practical ways, if somebody's listening today, um, that maybe can get more involved in mission mobilizing in their church or just getting more Great Commission focused? I know in our, one of our previous conversations, you said God's role is not for you to get into the Great Commission. It's to get the Great Commission into you. That's right. And I'm actually quoting a guy named David Bryant, in case he happens to watch your program. <laughs> yeah, it's and um, I like to do I like to do five ideas, five things. Right. So that way you can get, you know, the, the more fingers you have, the tighter your grip on the Great Commission. How's that for an illustration? Which is actually borrowed from the navigator. Navigator word. I was going to the word hand. Yeah. The hand, the hand illustration. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, but I think the first place we need to start is information. And informa you know, and what I'm talking about now is like these things as as regular disciplines, maybe not daily disciplines, but regular. Information about the scriptures. You know, studying the scriptures in terms of what do they say about the other tribes. You know, everybody's talking about America being tribal. Well, Maybe, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about that. What does it say about the outsider, the Samaritan, the leper, the outcast, the woman in, uh, caught in adultery, those kind of things. But not just biblical information, global information. I've listened to people pray for countries that are sending their own missionaries and they pray for that country like there's no Christians there. And the reason why they do that is because they're praying 1950 prayers or 1970 prayers, and they forget the fact that things have changed. So I tell people, go to operationworld.org. You know, go to some of these other sources. Take go ahead, a, Take a perspectives class. I mean, we've just, we've just finished one here in, in, in Ocala area. You know. Yeah. And, and if you take perspectives, you'll be more educated about world mission than the average pastor who graduates an evangelical seminary in America. <laughs> Which is a tragic statement, but it's true. Well, it was but, interesting at the end of the perspectives class locally. The the pastor of the church hosting it, he uh, he just talked about his own journey of you know taking a had perspectives book in his class in the seminary, and he he said I'm 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 now seeing that I really needed this information for me as a pastor, even though God may not have called me to be a missionary. I'm I'm a mobilizer. I'm you know, trying to shepherd this flock. And, and so it was really interesting. Really, I really enjoyed what he said, his testimony at the end of Perspectives, his shift and change from when he was in seminary versus today. Yeah, 
And it's just, you know, and information could be reading a book like what you were talking about, Western Christians or something like that. But basically, the Holy Spirit guides us based on the fuel of information and biblical and practical. And related to that, I would strongly encourage people to listen to some sort of global news broadcast. You know, if, if the BBC is uncomfortable to you, well, try something that's going to tell you something about more than just the United States. So that you're, you know, praying for the situation in Myanmar right now, or you're praying for the Rohingya people in southern Myanmar. Right, John. Yeah, or northern Mozambique. You know, one of the you know, the situation that we don't hear about in our news, but you know, we know a guy who's there, and so there's a yeah. vest. We care about, you know, you know somebody, and it, you know, not you know, trying to find news where you can about the situation. Right, and so that reminds me, missionary newsletters. That are great sources of information. And information is usually so overwhelming that we need the second figure, which is intercession, turning the information into prayer. Hmm. You know, um, because it's too big for us to handle. I can't fix the situation in my own country, much less the situation in, you know, some tyrannical leader in the Middle East or something like that. So um, prayer is a discipline. Because of COVID, and I don't exactly know when you'll broadcast, but because of COVID, somebody asked me, they said, hasn't your world really, really shrunk? Because I was flying a couple of hundred thousand miles every year, and then 2020 was a shutdown, and uh, and this year has been pretty, pretty slow, right? Because there's no place to go. Went from Delta I'm, Diamond to Delta Silver real quick, huh? Uh, more like I went from occasional upgrades to the back seat that didn't recline. <laughs> but um, but they said they said hasn't your world really shrunk? I said well my my ministry world has shrunk. My prayer world never shrinks. Hmm. That's a good answer. And uh, intercession. The third thing I say is involvement. Nothing fuels your heart for the Great Commission as being involved. And be involved with international students, being involved with uh, English as a second language. It's, it's amazing to me how many people love to pray for missions in Africa, but won't cross the street to, some, to meet someone from another culture. And um, involvement is like putting your money where your mouth is. You know, and maybe involvement is hosting the perspectives class. Maybe involvement is is getting all your podcasts together and having a group that comes and looks at them every two weeks or every week. You know, getting involved in mobilizing, the best way to involve others in mobilizing is be mobilized. It's easier to say to people, do this. It's easier to say to people, follow me, than it is to say, do this. And uh, that's involvement, which relates to the fourth finger is integration and integration I'm not just talking about going to a multicultural church which is a good idea but integration is let it touch your life you know right now in my ministry we're hearing every day about the tragic situation in India with COVID Mm -hmm. right so my wife and I chat together and find out there's a guy who's got a contact at a hospital that is suddenly taking in COVID patients by law, it was regular hospital, didn't have a COVID wing. Now they have to take in 40 at least COVID patients in this tiny little hospital. So they were putting out a plea because they, they, they had some oxygen tanks, but 
they didn't have an oxygenator, which I guess is the doohickey that fills the tanks. So 1200 bucks buys an oxygenator. Integration is basically saying, this is what I know. This is what I'm going to do about what I know. You know, it's amazing. Speaking to our own country for a second. It's amazing how many people have either um, complained to me about, you know, the racial injustice and stuff like that. But they're people that look like me. And I said, well, have you ever talked to a black person about being mistreated? Well, no. So their opinion is totally based on whatever letters, TV show, TV station they listen to. You know, integration is putting your putting it into action. And the fifth one is investigation. Because I think every Christian from any culture who's seriously mobilizing needs to ask the Christian, Lord, what about me? Where do you want me to go? And there's a lot of people my age and older who have huge financial capacity to retire. But what are they going to do with that? You know, I don't think shuffleboard is Jesus' long-term goal for us. Well, uh, yeah, it's John Piper, you know, don't waste your life. It's the back yeah. cover is about moving to Florida so you can play softball and collect seashells. You know, that's the, you know, Wait that's a second. His... I go to Sanibel. We collect seashells. What's wrong with that? <laughs> hey, nothing wrong with collecting seashells. Yeah. But when that no, becomes the driving force of your life, then uh, <laughs> there's a problem. There's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and it's interesting. Um, we had a lady from our church. Um, she came to me, I was the missions pastor at this point. She came to me and she was, uh, retiring. She says, Paul, I'm retiring. I don't want to sit in a rocking chair till I have to. Can you give me something to do? Well, Marion was African-American heritage from Barbados, actually in the Caribbean. Okay. And, um, and she was a career nutritionist, right? So in other words, preparing um, nutritious meals for large groups of people. She had worked at an army compound and then she had worked at a nursing care facility. She was, I'm a nutritionist. Put me to work. So we did some research and found a ministry down in Haiti, right? That uh, where they were feeding at that point 700 kids a week with at least one or two nutritious meals. Using her skills, and a contribution from the church for a gigantic, like, Cuisinart type of thing. Um, she moved from feeding 7,000 kids a week to 2,000 kids a week. And she trained two Haitians to take her place. Right? So good mission. Hmm. She ends up becoming this advocate and um, ambassador to Haiti between age 74, I think it was. No, sorry, 66 and 86 over those 20 years she went to haiti more than 44 times right after cancer she went back to haiti after a second cancer she went back to haiti and her funniest story marianne used to say she would come to speak at our church to our seniors so these are the retirees if you will and she says now you can only say this when you're in your 80s all right but she says paul I need to talk to these people about coming to join me in Haiti. I said, okay, Marion, have at it. So she gets in front of the seniors and she says, some of you are afraid to come to Haiti with me. Then you say to yourself, 
if I come to Haiti, I might die in Haiti. And I will say, and she says, my only comment to you is twofold. Number one, I'm looking at all of us in our age. We're going to die whether we go to Haiti or not. And she says, secondly, it's so much cheaper to be buried in Haiti. So it's pragmatic. She recruited my mom to go with her on a mission trip to, to Kenya. My mom had never crossed, uh, never, never been outside of, uh, well, she went one time to Scotland, but beyond that, nothing. She said, Paul, I have to go. I said, why? I, Marion took away my only excuse. I said, what's your only excuse? I'm too old. Marion's like two years older than me. But that's the kind of person that I want to be, mm-hmm. you know, because the, the worst thing that happens with our retirees is literally 50, 60 years of wisdom is lost because they don't take it on the road. And so that's sort of in, that investigation is not just for the young person saying, God, how do you want to lead me? But it's for each one of us. So, yeah, good stuff. So yeah. it's great. Well, the book is Western Christians in Global Mission. So, highly encourage if you're listening out there. Hope you enjoyed the time with Paul and uh, might be intrigued to get the book. We'll make sure we put a link in the show notes below. And, Paul, any final thoughts as we wrap up here today I'm going to give some bad grammar all right when you think about global issues and global needs whatever you do don't do nothing there you go good stuff don't do nothing that's it yeah I like it well it might just be you know talking to the guy across the street because maybe that's the next Nate Saint. Well, it's true. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Paul. We appreciate the time. God bless you and God bless iTech. Keep going. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Mission Minded. For more information on today's topic and show notes, please visit our website, itechusa.org. Mission-Minded Podcast is produced by iTech. The goal of this podcast is to inspire conversations about Great Commission participation. The views, organizations, and individuals represented, interviewed, and discussed on the podcast do not necessarily represent an official position or formal partnerships with iTech.